Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Greenlight Guru is committed to improving the quality of life, and now we're ready to improve the quality of education and training in the medical device industry. Greenlight Guru Academy is a comprehensive training resource for anyone looking to learn industry best practices with actionable training from industry experts. You'll get on-demand courses that allow you to move at your own pace on topics related to quality and regulatory product development, design controls, risk management, doc control. Honestly, it's too many to fit into a short ad. So if you're ready to level up your medical device education, visit greenlight.guru forward slash academy today. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. This is Etienne, your host of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking with Steve Gompertz. I hope I didn't mess up his name again. I think I messed it up when we uh, talked in person, but he is a leader in quality systems management with over 30 years of experience in the medical device uh, medical technology industry. He and I talked about guerrilla tactics for quality leadership and really kind of implementing a lean QMS, putting the requirements in place that are truly required. His career includes roles in quality system development and management, project management, engineering automation, configuration management, audits, software development. He runs the gamut. He has worked for multiple big companies that you, well, we'll just go on from that. But Steve, he holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Lehigh University. He actually teaches a master's course at St. Cloud State University. And he really has some interesting thoughts when it comes to quality management system, building those documents out. And I really enjoyed this episode. Also, I will say one other thing. We are actually holding an Ask Me Anything session with Steve on July 20th. So if you're listening to this before July 20th, 2022, you are welcome to come into our community, the MedTech Excellence community that Greenlight Guru has built out. We're going to have an Ask Me Anything session with uh, with Steve. If you want to go to that, it's community.greenlight.guru. And you will need the access code, or at least as, as of right now, you'll need the access code TRUEQUALITY2022. So I'll put the link in the show notes and hope to see you there. Hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is Etienne Nichols, your host of the podcast. Today with me is Steve Gompertz. Am I saying your last name right? I should have. Uh, I like the way you say it. Oh. I, I just say Gompertz. Gompertz, okay. Yeah. I'm, thinking, I'm getting too fancy over here. Well, you know, I, everybody's heard me European, but that's probably how they say it. <laughs> Excited to be with you, Steve. I'm especially excited about our topic today because, and I think our our audience will really respond well to this because it's about quality management systems, specifically the guerrilla tactics for quality leadership. And when you sent that title over, I was excited reading about that. But tell me what that means to you. What do you mean by guerrilla tactics for quality leadership? Yeah, it's obviously meant to be eye-catching. It's kind of create a reaction, but it's it's really just about thinking outside the box, you know, in colloquial terms. And the best way to describe it is just how to get things done without asking for permission, right? And not getting fired. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's always, uh, the title definitely always catches everybody's attention. And I borrowed it actually from another consultant decades ago, where I went to a similar session that he was giving on what was at the time called uh, concurrent engineering. You now think of that as integrated product development. Back then, that was the, the hot new term. And I was at a conference, and yeah, he was doing this talk on guerrilla tactics for concurrent engineering. And one, I liked kind of the boldness of the title. And he had lots of really great ideas for just not just how to get concurrent engineering you know, in place, but how to implement change without the authority right, to do so. And a lot of people, I think, struggle with that. And that's really what... When I do this workshop, that's what it's about. It's how to get you past those barriers. That's a really good, something you bring up there. When you said doing it without, you know, maybe having permission without getting fired, you know, or any negative repercussions, hopefully it doesn't get to that extreme. But I think a lot of people, maybe if they've not been in the medical device industry, or maybe if they have been in the medical device industry and have worked for large organizations with very burdened quality management systems or restrictive standard operating procedures, mm-hmm. you know, that that is a struggle. And a lot of people probably feel like these regulations are too restrictive. 
What, what's your response to that? How do you react when people talk about those types of things? Yeah, so there's a couple of things going on, what you just asked there. So I get the element of, you know, on a regulated industry, it seems tougher, right, to kind of go outside the boundaries. The topic, though, really does apply across just about any industry and not just quality, right, any, any function. But to your point, you're right that, that you know, big you know, hammer over everybody's head of the FDA or whatever regulatory body it is, always creates this fear. You know, we can't do this, we can't do that, FDA will hate it, an auditor will find this and, and you know, write us up for it. And early in my career in, in the med device industry, that's what I heard a lot of. That was sort of the anecdotal training. It was don't do that because, you know, FDA, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we've said those in hushed term tones, will not like it or not approve it. And then as I became more of an actual student of the regulations and the standards, you know, really started to become a professional rather than a hobbyist uh, around this stuff, I started to realize, you know, the, the regs and the standards aren't actually that specific too often. They are intentionally vague, right? And sometimes that, you know, is a point of frustration for people. But when you think about it, they have to be because there's no way to just have a one size fits all. So to me, I kind of flip that around and go, well, then I'm pretty open to how I want to interpret this as long as I can defend it and show that, yes, I'm meeting the intent of these requirements, right? The requirements are broad. So, you know, and, and FDA inspectors and other types of auditors will tell you that. Yeah, we, we don't tell you exactly how to do it. You tell us what you believe is right for your environment, your organization, and be prepared to defend that. And if you convince us, then we're good, right? But they're not coming in with a pre-prescribed you know, uh, prescribed notion of exactly what your quality system has to look like or what that particular activity has to look like. Except, like I said, in a few rare instances, like if you look at, you know, A20, you know, complaint management is one. Very specific to the, the information they want, which sure. is why it's always surprising that so many companies get written up for that. But that's a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> that's maybe one we should cover at some point. That That's Yeah, point. That, that would be, a, that is a good one to talk about. That and Kappa, right? Two places, they are really pretty specific and everybody gets it wrong. I don't understand. Yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to figure that one out sometime. All right. Well, I am curious though. So a lot of companies have these very massive documents, you know, maybe like 30, 40, 50 page quality manual. What do you advise companies? Have you had experience in, you know, that sort of thing, trimming those down, making them still, you know, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a, that's a pet peeve of mine. When I do the workshop, there's a whole section uh, basically on lean documentation as a better approach, right? I think, again, that idea that in a regulated space, we better say more right, to be really clear. And uh, one for the auditors, and again, I don't know why we always write for the auditors. That's They're not working with us every day. You know, they come in once a year, maybe. But more importantly, right, to the people that have to then perform activities under these procedures or work instructions, and we feel like we got to be really prescriptive and detailed, and these things just become massive, and it works against you because nobody wants to read them, especially if it's words, right? And so, you know, I, I push the ideas of move more towards the lack of words, images. How about videos, right? Let's let's rethink what a document means. But if you do have to have some words somewhere uh, on the page, it's just, how do you just lean it out to what you actually need? And again, it comes back to, do you understand the intent of whatever requirement you're trying to meet, you know, within the standard of the regulation? And quality manuals are usually, right, it's the starting point. You know, when you have that typical pyramid of what everybody's policy looks like, right? The, the, the triangle at the top is the quality manual. You know, and if you think about that diagram, it's the smallest object on the, on the pyramid. So why yeah. is it the largest document, right? So I, I took over a position as a head of worldwide quality for a company. And a week later, we had an audit come in. So I don't really know anything about how the company operates, but I sit down with the auditor. And typical, you know, they ask for, hey, could I see the quality manual? And I slide a 45-page document across the table to him, and he picks it up. Kind of like that old thing about a professor weighing your paper to decide what your grade is. And he's just sort of holding it, feeling its heft. And then he looks at me and goes, tell me again, how many requirements is this designed to meet? And I said, three. And he goes, but it took this much paper to describe how you satisfy those three requirements. And my answer was, I've only been here a week. I'm going to be working on it. Right. My response to that is 
yeah, why do you need 45 pages to meet three requirements? And then I, I also teach uh, at St. Cloud State University, a class on quality systems and several other classes. And I always challenge my students going, well, how small is too small? And if I'm telling you to lean it out, where is there a, is there a lower limit? You know, and they think about their own companies, you know, what they've seen, what can go, well, it'd be nicer if it was under 20 pages. All right, maybe we could do 10. And I go, can you get down to single digits? And then they start getting uncomfortable. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know, small quality manual. And then I always throw out, what if you could fit it on two sides of a piece of paper? And they kind of go, well, no, that wouldn't work. And then I whip this out. This is my, oops, I don't know if that'll come up. No, there it is. This is my trifold brochure version of a quality manual that meets all three requirements and is fully audit tested, both in a regulated and a non-regulated environment. So it's met audits in 9001, 13485. So the first time I showed that to an FDA inspector, typical audit, let me see your quality manual, and I hand them this, and and instead of weighing it, he looked at it and went, finally. (laughs) <laughs> right that's awesome because <laughs> right? there are just certain things he wanted to look for in a quality manual he didn't want to go through 45 pages to get there. Wow. and yeah i mean and this causes some shock i mean the first time i did this it was in a non-regulated industry for a 9001 based quality system and then i tried to move it into you know my next gig with a medical device company and they went well, I'm sure a 9001 order would be fine with that. No, but an FDA inspector, BSI, TV, they're not going to accept this. Okay, but <laughs> why? The concepts are the same. So, time out for just a second. I got to ask, how did you feel the first time you took that into an audit? I, did you have any trepidation at all? Uh, I didn't. I was pretty confident. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes I'm overconfident, maybe, but, um, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't like I could blame it on youth, uh, you know. Back in, earlier in my career, I would have, wouldn't have hesitated at all. But I just felt like I was at a point in my career where I was on top of my game. This, the, the traditional style of quality manuals and other quality documentation no longer made any sense to me. And having been through enough audits and running with the expectations, and again, I don't always base what my decisions on what I think the auditor wants to see. I look at what does the company need to meet the intent, which is we're supposed to produce safe and effective devices. Right. And if you're 9001, you're supposed to produce customer satisfaction. So what does it take to do that? That's really what the auditors are trying to confirm. So, yeah, I felt pretty confident going in. But, yeah, it was a good first test. So how is that going to fly? And like I said, when that you know, auditor went, finally, <laughs> there we go. That's all I needed to hear. So if we go to the I did. I interrupted you and I apologize for that. Okay. So if, if we go back to your story, though, you're talking you're now you're taking into a medical device. Two things I w- I'm curious about. Number one, obviously, how did it go? But number two, how did you get buy off on that company to actually to, to then maybe that goes back to your guerrilla tactics? What are your, yeah. So yeah, I mean that, that's 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 one of the things I do talk about in, in, when I do the workshop is right. One of the barriers is often, as I said, right. You want you feel like you need permission to do this. Um, so what if you? can't right <laughs> you don't feel like you've got a good position to do that um in this case it was just good timing right there have been other places i wanted to do it and i wasn't going to be able to get anybody above me to allow that risk in this case you know i'd had the idea for quite a while but now i'm finally with a company that's smaller and i was part of the actual executive team and the ceo was pretty good at trusting me. That was why he hired me. He understood the logic and he was like, if you are confident that this isn't going to jeopardize our certification, then I'm behind it. So I lucked out in that case. But if he hadn't, right, if I if I had to do it over again and I wasn't going to get total buy-in, what I might have done is have this in my back pocket, Gone with the improved, you know, a, a revised version of the 45 pages, maybe down to 15 or 20 pages, just to lean it out as much as possible. But I probably would have offered this up for opinion to the audience. So as long as I have you, if instead I had handed you this, <laughs> what would your reaction be, right? And get that other data point that I can then go back to somebody and go, hey, the auditor said he would have been fine with that and actually saw some benefits. Right? So it's part of building that groundswell. And you know, I talk about this in the grill tactics. 
when you're thinking like a guerrilla leader, you have to sway the masses, right? You, you typically don't get to, you have to recruit. You don't get conscripted forces to work with you. You have to convince people. And so part of it is building up that rapport and showing them that there is a chance of success, you know, and that the risks are not as horrible as they might be. There's always some, but that's part of the guerrilla tactics is you've got to think like that is how am I going to bring together a informal army, right, to go with me on this journey and the influence some of the powers that be to maybe become, you know, rebels on their own, you know. (laughs) So that's the quality manual. I'm sure there are other aspects or other areas of uh, organizations that you you know, see opportunities to lean out or what are some other pitfalls you see companies getting into as far as that goes? Well, I, yeah, I started to talk about just documents in general get to be too big. And you, know, you go into just about any company, do an audit or, or you know, do some consulting and everybody's SOPs tend to look the same. You could pretty much guess what the first sections are going to be. You're going to have purpose. You're going to have scope. You're going to have applicable documents. You're going to have definitions. You know, and all roles and responsibilities, right? We're we're down five sections, but we've not yet said what to do, right? And that's another thing I push back on. And I got this from one of my managers. That's what he brought up. He's, you know, I was revising a procedure and he said, why does it take six pages to get to the part I want to read, which is telling me how to do my job? I get it. This other stuff's important, but why does it come first? No, that's an interesting approach. And I've since completely revised my template that I recommend. Purpose and scope are important, right? Purpose tells you, am I reading the right document? And does this apply to me? Great. After that, section three is the procedure. Definitions, applicable documents, reference documents, uh, roles and responsibilities, all of that can go in an appendix at the back. If the reader wants it, they know where to find it. But typically what they want to see is show me the flowchart. And flowcharts is another big thing that I do. More graphics than words. They typically want to see what does this look like? Is there somewhere then I can jump to for some additional information? And all that background information, is that somewhere else that I can find as well? But instead of flooding it to the front, and now I got a page and page and page until I get what I want, and I'm already losing my audience, right? We're coming bored with this. It, it's, it definitely flips it upside down. Why are you doing it? Well, it's because they all, right? So we said that's what they have to look for. So really, you're you're building the SOP for the people who are going to be using it, not so much for the auditors. <laughs> right. And that's I think that's the other problem is that these are typically written for the audit, right? In order to pass an audit, but that's not their purpose. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's one of those uh, heretical statements I make to my students and I go, stop worrying about the FDA. Shocked look like it wasn't with the whole degree program is about is learning how to <laughs> not get in trouble. And I said, but the FDA wants the same thing that the company needs, and that's to operate correctly, right? The goal of the safe and effective device, that's what we're in business for is medical device manufacturers. And that's what FDA is about as well. It's just, but we're going to give you some guardrails, right? Some, some guidelines to follow. Um, well, they're not guidelines. We, you know, I'm going to tell you, you have to do them this way. But ultimately, that's the same thing we want, you know, and you do it as a business because it's going to make you a successful business. FDA wants you to do it so you don't hurt anything. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. I think, you know, you just need to get into that mindset of we're not in the business to pass audits. We're in the business to produce a safe and effective medical device and to make money. That's the part FDA doesn't care about, but there's a way to do that. And it's typically, I always tell people, Stop, you know, the typical human thing. We don't like to be told what to do. So regulations and standards are just like just obvious examples of that. And we automatically have a negative opinion of them. And I always tell people, step back, stop just reading what the words say and start thinking about why are they there? Why did they feel the need to put that requirement in there? Understand the purpose of it, its intent. And eventually you start to go, even if I wasn't in a regulated industry, isn't this how I'd want to run a company anyway so that it would operate efficiently? I, of course, I want doc controls. Of course, I want to know what revision things are at. I don't want to lose sight of that. By the way, my intellectual property is probably dependent upon it. Oh. So there's all these business reasons for all these requirements that are in the regulations and the standards. Focus on that. And if, if that drives you 
and you're going, well, what's the way in which I should do it? Now you can refer back to the regulation standard because it'll tell you here's where the guardrails are. You have to stay on this road if you're going to do this. So it just takes a, a change in that mindset of going, what's right for the business and what we're trying to do. And we understand the risk. Oh yeah, and we're going to get it, we're going to get audited or inspected at some point. You know, there are there is this FDA thing. So yeah, we will have to pay attention to that, but don't make that the problem. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So you had mentioned something about graphics and flow charts. So I can look back at my past where we had, you know, maybe we were talking about design controls and we had a flow chart that was, we went the other direction with flow charts. How do you maintain that, that middle ground? And one other thing, and that, that is, I hear some people say, well, you don't want flow charts because they're an audit trap. Because, you know, people update the words and they don't update the flow chart. How does that work with the redundancy or, or what are your thoughts? I'd like to hear more about, about that. Yeah, so there's a lot to that. There's, when, when you create a quality system, you have to think about the architecture first and foremost. And that's why you have that pyramid as the starting point. But it's very hierarchical. It's, at least it's supposed to be. Right? Which could be back a segue back to why are some quality manuals so big and, and for small entities, you can just have a single document that is everything. But if you're in a larger organization, you are supposed to think about the architecture, the hierarchy of these documents, and that's what the pyramid is supposed to be showing, that there are these layers. And you have to be very clear about what kind of content exists in each layer. The quality manual is just satisfying three things and just sort of sets the stage. This is what our architecture is. This is our quality policy. This is how we interpret these things. Here's the roadmap to the rest of it. Then the layer that's often missing in the, in the pyramid is a process layer. Usually we jump from quality manual to procedures. And then you end up with a bunch, a whole bunch, dozens and dozens of procedures. And you go, well, how are they connected? And you go, oh, because there is that piece about that it's supposed to be a process-based system, uh, you know, in the regs and the standards. <laughs> And that's the layer that's missing that you should define the high level, right? So I always use design controls as an example. That at that process layer, there should be a document that says, this is what our overall design and development process looks like. We have a five-stage process, right? We do concept development, we do design, uh, then we do development, then we do uh, market release, and then post-market follow-up. Something like that. That's a very simple flowchart to start people thinking, here's what this looks like overall. Now, that concept stage, phase one, let's write a procedure for how to perform that. Right? So each stage now gets its own procedure at the next level. And within the procedures, you think about, all right, what are the activities that need to be performed to come up with a good concept to move forward? You're still, in all of this, you're very focused on What's happening? You're not yet into a lot of detail about how. And that keeps some of the complexity out of it. It lets you keep those flow charts a little cleaner because, you, you know, like I said, you've gone from big blocks, a five block flow chart that says this is design and development. So at least we get the context. Now we go into phase one and you get another little bit more detailed flow chart that says, well, these are the activities we have to do requirements definition and you have to do requirements uh, assessment. Whatever, maybe now there's eight or ten blocks, activity blocks in there. And all you said is that this is an activity that occurs and this is its purpose, but we've still not said how. And now you make the decision for each of those activities do you need a work instruction that says step by step, we want it to look like this. Mm. But also keep in mind, not everything needs that. Some things it is sufficient to just go. This activity has to occur. It needs to produce these deliverables when it's done. Yeah. That's all you need, right? <laughs> we don't need to tell you exactly how maybe you make it easier by, oh, we'll give you a template for that delivery because we prefer some you know, continuity or not have you waste time trying to figure it out. But you make that more guidance. You don't have to use that template. If it doesn't fit the project you're working on and you have a better idea, that works better for your project, go for it, as long as it meets these requirements. Right? So it's this idea of thinking through the levels of detail and keeping the most detail down at the bottom 
and don't write a proceed a work instruction for everything unless you actually need to constrain those steps. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That make that makes sense. The the process layer. So I I do come from a background where the different medical device companies that I've worked for that was how it was. It's massive, uh, a massive quality manual with those dozens of SOPs that. Yeah, you, you had to go back to the quality manual to figure out where they went to each other. But that makes sense what you're saying. Um, yeah. It's m- blowing my mind a little bit. Honestly, it is a bit of a mindset shift. Yeah, I, I've been to some places where rather than having a process layer, that process diagram is in the quality, which then yeah. might make the quality manual bigger. But they're sort of combining two layers. As long as you get the concept of what is more typical is you go from this very high level stuff in the quality manual, which typically is also just a repeat of what's in the standard is not valuable at all and then it jumped down like i said yeah this big pile of procedures that are not connected clearly and they wonder why things are inefficient and they have non-conformance because nobody can see the bigger picture because you didn't draw it in the right way yeah wow so do you have as you go through and work with companies how do you I mean, I guess just the way you just did with me talking through it, showing how it works, that makes sense that, it, you know, it makes sense to me. If it's audit, you know, ready, then why would you argue against that? But when we go back to your guerrilla tactics, um, doing those things without permission, um, what does that look like implementing some of these these uh, tactics? Yeah, so the, it, it, it depends, but there's a lot of different uh, approaches to this. Um, one of my favorites is I, I, I call it hide the vegetables which is sneak it in there without calling it what it is. Um, this is, I learned this from somebody else that uh, I had a great respect for. I went to a, a new company and they are taking me a little training and I it was Kappa, uh, doing Kappa training. And he goes, you got to read the SOP and there's a form, right, to fill out when you do Kappas. And I go, all right, let me see if I understand what they're doing here. And there's a section here and it says, all right, you need to go in here and you need to define the problem. All right, great. And then the next section is, you know, do you have any measurements to support that? Okay, and then there's a section of, so give us an analysis of what those metrics are telling you. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went on, I went, did I just hear define, measure, and analyze? E-M-A. <laughs> Am I going to guess that the next section, right, is something about what's the improvement? You know, sure enough, there was demand buried in this process, but it didn't say Six Sigma anywhere. And it didn't wow. say to make. And I went and found the guy who wrote it. And I said, am I nuts? <laughs> Does this sound a lot like Six Sigma? And what I got from him was, shh. <laughs> Nobody's supposed to realize that. That is and genius. He was, black belt. he was a master black belt. And he goes, because when I tried to sell the idea of going full-blown Six Sigma, you know, they pushed back on it. Didn't want to spend the money on whatever cost of you know, master black belt. So I've been spoon-feeding it to them a little at a time. And the idea is eventually this just becomes how the process works. And then when you start talking about this demand process, everybody goes, you mean that process we already do? <laughs> so what's different? We've been doing that for three years, haven't we? Yes. <laughs> now we're just calling it by what it's supposed to be called. So that's the hide the vegetables approach is that, yeah, can you sneak pieces of it in there somewhere? That seems and obvious once you on. once you say it. It just seems so obvious, but oh, doesn't wow. it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because I so I've been in situations where you know we had to read books on kata, you know, for manufacturing, or you're going to read, uh, you know, maybe we're going to in- implement Scrum for project management, and everybody rolls their eyes and uh, you're like, ah, oh, how do we do this? But that makes total sense what you just said. So interesting. Yeah, and, and like, there's there's all those whether it's. Agile or you know lean or whatever, all of these things. There's always somebody who can find some pushback for why you know it's an outdated concept. And you don't want to go there or it's nothing new. So yeah, you just start you know hiding a few pieces in there, and then it just becomes the norm. And eventually, maybe somebody like me figures it out and goes, "Wait, I know what you're doing. Yeah. It's okay." Yeah. <laughs> so um, one of the other things that I'm curious about is uh, when you put these these new things in place, what are the type of metrics that you should put in place to determine whether, you know, you did the right thing, you know, um, 40 pages versus a trifold makes, I mean, that in and of itself seems like an, a no brainer and obvious thing, but at the same time, um, you know, we like to measure certain things. What kind of metrics do you put on a quality management system? Oh, boy, there's a big topic. Because- uh. 
it's right. It's something everybody gets wrong. They measure the wrong things. They measure what they, well, management wants to hear. But they don't understand the intent, right? Um, and so um, a good example, doc control, right? I'll tell a client, all right, as we're defining, and one thing I like to do is like to say, hey, at that process layer, in that document, call it a QSP, quality system process. Um, there's going to be a section that says, what are we measuring? In this process, right? Kind of every process, I go, well, that's the intent. <laughs> there's actually there's actually a requirement for that. <laughs> you know, because um, you know, if you talk about manufacturing, right, cycle times, yield, all that, that stuff's really obvious. And then you go, so what's the measurement on dock control? Right. And I go, oh, oh, oh yeah, we already we already measure that. No, what do you what, when we measure? What are you measuring? And I can guess what it is. It's how fast does it take to get a change request? That's what I was going to guess. Yeah. Right. It's time. Right. Because yep. that's what management likes. They like efficiency, cost less if it takes less time. And I always go, does that really tell you whether or not the process is effective? Because I know lots of ways to speed it up by cutting corners. Yep. Right. And that's not going to make it more effective. It's going to make it less effective, but it's going to be fast. Yeah. Right. What I want to know is things like, how many of those changes should have been avoidable, right? So how many, let's categorize why that change was requested. Is it because it's an improvement to the document or to improve some feature of the device or is it a correction mm. or something that should not have been there in the first place, right? Because then the metrics will tell us, hey, maybe our review process, our change review process is not effective, right? People would maybe rubber stamp it and stuff. Yeah. Because you can always do another change request later and fix it, right? Until it becomes something, well, when you missed it, it was actually a big deal. And I do, uh, with my classes, I do a whole bunch of sections on minor errors that result in catastrophic failures, um, things like that. And some, and a lot of them come back to documentation. Something that got missed in the documentation uh, results in a rocket exploding on launch. And, uh, there's, uh, I use a video of the Arian for... Uh, was back in the 80s or 90s, I think, and it exploded 15 seconds after liftoff. Oh. And I was asking everybody when we watched the video, and this missile explodes into half a billion dollars lost. And I said, what was your first thought? Was it documentation error? The crosswinds instead of something like that. Well, it actually was when they did an investigation. It was a documentation error. They, they had put a requirement in the wrong place in the document. Therefore, the downstream users of their document the test the 2A department did not see the requirement, therefore did not write a test within the protocol to test that situation that had actually occurred during the launch. Wow. That so is put a sentence in the wrong part of the document and five hundred billion dollars is lost. Wow. Five hundred million. And there's lots of examples like that. There's sure. like small errors, you know, and things like that. Because people go, why do we have to measure that control? Is that really an important process? <laughs> Can we focus on the really important ones? And go, well, I'll tell you what, it isn't documented, right? It didn't happen. And if it isn't documented right, things are going to go bad. So, so yeah, the metrics thing takes a lot of thought and it can be challenging. Uh, it's got to change the mindset, but you've got to get out of this. Well, this is what management's comfortable with. And then that goes to, oh, wait, management's going to expect to see cycle time related metrics. Now we're going to come back and say, that's not what we're measuring anymore. So you're back to that influence, right? You've got to sell them. Um, so how do you do that, right? If they go to management review and they want to see how fast their CR is going through and you don't immediately yank that out and go, no, we're going to show you this instead because that's when they're going to react badly. It's, oh, we'll keep showing you that metric. But we've been, just on the side, we've been tracking this other metric that we thought might be curious. And here's what we found, right? And then you, they start to get it and they go, wait, so 60% of our training requests shouldn't have been necessary how much time did that take yeah that we could have been spending on other things right you, again buy the vegetables and they start to get used to those, those metrics so yeah it, it's it's starting to combine certain techniques and go you know you don't want to just thrust it in there and go i'm replacing it because i think i'm smarter than you you're going to create that defensiveness it's like i talked about before if, if I had just shown up and said to an, an inspector, what do you think of this, right? Versus, oh, I've already replaced the big manual with this. You have to take it. You might not have that opportunity. The same thing happens uh, with metrics as well. 
the other way is not, you know, that was a topic that's been doing as well around metrics. And I do cover this in, in the Google Tactics workshop is how to get those measurements. Uh, because measuring things often creates fear. Right? You need to typically measure somebody else's process. Mm. And the people in that process automatically assume you're measuring them. So how do you make it clear you're not measuring them? Yeah, so they don't take it personally. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because there's always that age-old us versus them, you know, production workers versus management, right? They're just looking for a way to fire us or, you know, make us work harder, right? That kind of thing. So you have to be creative about sometimes about your, your data collection methods. They have to be less intrusive. It may require you turning some of those people that are in that process into part of your army, right? To get them to understand what's in it for them, what's in it, you know, both directly and indirectly, right? There's things that, how's it going to benefit me directly? Also, there's the indirect is, well, if this helps the company get better, then the company can afford to give you a raise next year, or the bonuses are, you know, yeah. go up. that's the indirect. You know, the direct is, hey, that part of the process that you hate doing, if we can get the right numbers, we can demonstrate maybe why we don't need to do that. And we've all seen that in, in production operations. Somebody's doing something, you go on, I couldn't do that eight hours a day. That would drive me nuts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, the examples are already popping in my head, but I better keep quiet, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Names have been I mean, changed. We've seen enough people assembling things with tweezers, right? Right. They're trying to thread something impossibly small through an impossibly small hole. Yeah. Just, um, I bet they don't enjoy doing that. I bet they'd rather be doing something else. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, but how do you make them sound? You know, way clear. We're not eliminating that step to eliminate you. It's so that we can better utilize your skills on something else, right? That's so a great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's something engineers. I guess every engineer has to go through that <laughs> that hazing from production at some point in their <laughs> career. Um, well, and that's the problem, right? If they if you just go down there and show up and want to start measuring things, they'll you know they can intentionally and unintentionally, you know interrupt or you know affect your measurements you know so you get biased and now it's not really good measurements so yeah it's how are you going to do this so that if you need them to be the ones taking the measurements they won't undermine you or if it can be done without direct interaction though how do you not influence what's happening right because there's always training management how do you evaluate the effectiveness of training and a lot of companies go oh well then after somebody takes the training we observe them the, the next three times they do it. And I go, well, two things are going to ha- possibly happen. Either they're going to do it perfectly because you're standing there watching them, or they're going to mess it up because you're standing there watching them. The observation right? influences the, influences the <laughs> <Right>. measurement. <laughs> so you need to get much more creative about, yeah, how are you going to collect this information without you becoming part of the, the, you know, the yeah. equation? So question you had mentioned that if we go back to earlier when you were talking about the regulations and how that mindset shift allows you to ask the question, why? You know, if we look at those words and we struggle, we don't like to be told what to do. But when you change your mindset and you start thinking, why is this written? This is helped to, here to better my business. I would want to be best practices. That makes sense to me from a looking at the regulations perspective. Now, if you think about metrics, now, I, I don't know why I wouldn't have thought immediately when I think, how do I want to measure change orders? Do I, you know, my mind immediately guess, well, time, because that's what I've seen measured in the past. Um, How fast does it take to get a change order through? Do you have any recommendations or tips, best practices to change your mindset shift in that way as well to say, okay, this is the maybe a metric that immediately comes to mind, but how do we get to the metric that we really want? So, you know, like teach the, you know, teach a man to fish. What are your thoughts? Yeah, the the key is how you define the problem, right? Like anything else, it starts with requirements. And if you don't define the problem correctly, then everything after that's going to be down going down the wrong path. The same way as if you don't get the right requirements place, everything you're going to build and design is going to be wrong. And, and it's a step we often just go right past because we think the problem statement is easy because it's staring us in the face, isn't it? We go, no, not necessarily. (laughs) That's what you observe. Those are the symptoms. That's not actually the problem. So again, it's a mindset, but spend a lot of time making sure you're working on the correct problem. 
the problem with doc control is not how long it takes to get a change request through. It's how many change requests we're doing and why are we doing it, right? Are they value added changes versus things we should have been, right? Things we should have been able to avoid. Uh, I was at a talk recently uh, and somebody threw out a quote. It gets attributed to Albert Einstein, but it's one of those quotes that, again, he never sure. said. Uh, but it goes along the lines of somebody at some point said it. But if I had an hour to save the world, I'd spend 50 minutes figuring out what the issue was and 10 minutes implementing. That's the mindset change. We tend to flip it, right? We spend yeah. 10 minutes defining the problem and then all the other effort goes into solving, right? And we could be solving the wrong problem. Got to spend the time up front. Like I said, there's lots of, you know, Deming teaches a lot of this, you know, if you put that wrong problem statement in place. And the example I've used with my students is, if I state the problem of that um, a certain part is failing inspection too many times, right? the percentage of inspection failures is too high. If I restate that as the problem, I know that the solution really quickly. Let's not inspect that part. Yeah, there you go. And the metrics will come right back down where we want them. <laughs> <laughs> Great right? example. Well, that's not the problem. The problem isn't that they fail inspection. <laughs> yeah. The problem lies somewhere else. The problem is, right, they're not within tolerances on a regular basis, and therefore they're not going to fit in the assembly they're supposed to go into. All right, now let's do the five whys off of that. Okay. And often what it turns out to be is it has nothing to do with the inspection process, it's something much earlier and somewhere else is where the solution lies. And it could be in those doc reviews. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So it manifests itself in production or in incoming inspection. That's not where the solution is. The solution lies way earlier than that, and maybe a completely different part of the world, right? In a different organization. That's where the solution. Is. And I've got I've had lots of experiences with that where we're focusing on the wrong part of the process. And go, actually, it's not the last step in the process, it's the first step. Started there three months ago. We solved this. That's that's a great point. Yeah, I can remember in a manufacturing line where we were having failures, and they immediately knew. Well, we know it's this problem up here that gets injection molded, so we go right right up to that that part. And uh, I just started walking up the line, starting at the problem, going back, just kind of thinking. Because I'm like, what do I know? These guys are smarter than me. But the next part, I looked at. I'm like, would it have would it have detected the failure here? No. Would it have detected the failure here? No. There were multiple places it could have landed, and actually, it was one of those um, one of those spots where the the failure occurred. It wasn't the actual part itself that they thought, you know, up, upstream. So that's a really good point. You know, one person had told me, and I forget this too. I wish I wish it was always at the tip of my tongue, but the heart of the problem is the seed of the solution. And uh, it's just like you said, every time you, every time someone tells me that it's the requirements, it's understanding the true problem statement. That's really, that's really the key. I love, I love that. And that's, that's a, that's a great point. It makes life easier if you focus on the true problem instead of, like you said, you know, fixing the, the length of change orders or fixing the, uh, you know, yeah. the fact that we're inspecting. And again, it's human nature and they say men are more inclined to do it, right? Just to jump right into the solutions. <laughs> Right, you got to kind of take yeah. that step back and go. Am I solving the right thing? Am I listening? Right. Yeah. There's probably a bunch of gender-based things that I should do. <laughs> they no. often say men do the wrong thing. You know, think more like a woman, maybe. But underlying that is this idea of, yeah, don't don't make the assumptions. Right. Yeah. Get get the actual context correct first. That's a great, great, great observation. I appreciate that that observation. So. One other point that I remember you talking about, and that was the seven habits of highly effective quality leaders. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder if you want to touch on that. Um, what before we? Yeah, yeah, obviously we don't have time to go too deep in that, but I'm a big fan of Stephen Covey's book, yes. uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, I think it's still, you know, is high up on bestseller lists. You know, decades after he's written, he's dead. Um, but this big organization, but. I, I, I went through the training, you know, I'm not like, I don't have the tattoo. Or <laughs> Still time. But there's a lot of good stuff in there. 
And yeah, at one point I was just sitting down one day and I was, uh, you know, I was sort of lamenting. Actually, I did it first with project management. I was just sort of lamenting again the number of people in project management that just had never gone through any sort of formal training and didn't understand that there's science and actual methodology to it. It's not just being good firefighters, that kind of thing. And I was thinking about Covey's ideas and I said, well, you know, this, this habit actually is pretty similar to something you'd want to see in a good project. And if I change the wording a little bit, it talks more to project management. And then finally, went, I wonder if I could do it for all seven. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And I did. I, I eventually worked up the seven habits of effective project managers. And then, of course, as I got into quality, I went, well, time to do it again. See if I can do it through quality management or quality leadership. And I was able to. So, yeah. So I'm stealing heavily from Stephen Covey's ideas, but then turning it into things that are important from you know a quality leadership perspective. And we've talked about some. So yeah. this focus on requirements is one of the habits, right? That it's just first, you know, and always is, is about requirements. We touched on the, the language of management. That's also one of the habits is learning how to translate into management, which is mm-hmm. dollars. And that's the, the pretty typical thing that quality and any technical person gets into when they're trying to sell their ideas to management. And they understand all the technical aspects of it. And now they're going to try to sell it to somebody who's not as knowledgeable and doesn't necessarily care about the technical coolness of it. Yeah. They want to see the business side. You have to be able to do that. And I think it's, um, I think it's Duran has it twice in, in one of his books where he says that's the key is that you have to learn to be bilingual. You have to be able to talk technical speed and you'll be able to talk business speed and then merge the two together. And that's how you be influential. Uh, so that's you know one of the seven habits I've got in there. So yeah, I just I just borrowed very heavily uh, from Covey and said, what would the equivalent of this be if you were trying to you know be a quality? I'm curious, what was the one that really made you start thinking about that? If you do you remember? Uh, I think it was the requirements one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because that's always been a big thing with me, John. You know, uh, it, it's similar to I talked about. Don't spend the time like doing the problem saying you don't spend the time getting the requirements right then everything else falls apart from that. And it's the same thing. And, and it's, it's in the standards, it's in the regs, that requirements definition is not just about writing them down. It's not a brainstorming exercise, and then you pat yourself in the back, because now we have the requirements. There's all these other things they talk about, like, are you sure you've got them all? Are you sure yeah. they're not conflicting? Are you sure they're clear? <laughs> There's this evaluation piece that has to go on, right? And that implies more time has to be spent up front, getting the requirements. Why do they have that in there? Right? Now I saw why. Why is that in the, the, the standard of the reg? Because they understand if you don't get that point right, the rest of it doesn't yeah. really matter. You're going to do it wrong anyway. There's a tipping point, it feels like, in people's career. And you mentioned one uh, you know, in your career where you know, like you finally had a handle on all of those things. And, and so you could blaze the path. Uh, that maybe others haven't gone through yet. And that I think that's super cool and, and very admirable. I feel like there was this, not, not to the same extent, but there's a point in my career where I was frustrated with documentation. But then at one point I looked at everything. I thought, man, this is a little bit chaotic. We need a document that has just this much stuff just so we can have it all in one nice place. And so I did that and I just was able to breathe a sigh of relief. Documentation can make your life easier, should. And if it's if it doesn't, then then maybe you know maybe you're not doing it right. But yeah, the other, the other really big key is that word system, and quality management. System. It's there for a reason. You know? <laughs> it didn't just give us the third letter in QMS because we need yeah. three letters to make a decent acronym, right? It, you know, <laughs> it's there because that's really the key. Is you have to see it as a connection of things. If you're not understanding the connections, uh, I have this slide I show my students. Uh, it's an electrical schematic, right? And I said, these are your requirements to do that, right? Shows you the logic. And then I show a pile of parts that matches everything on, on the schematic. And I said, that's actually compliance because there's a one-for-one relationship for every requirement, right? That that schematic shows you, I can show you the part that goes there. But they're not touching each other. It's just a pile of parts. So nothing works until you assemble it into a system and then the intent of the schematic is realized. And, and we do that in so many different ways where we just create this pile of parts, whether it's a pile of documents or 
yeah. um, an unstructured bill of material or things like that. We don't think about the relationships. And that's why that word system is there. And that's part of the idea of doing the process-based thinking is to go, you need to see the bigger picture. Now, why don't we do that? It's hard. It, you know, it's hard to see the big picture. You know, um, you know so 820 hopefully is going to go away pretty soon. But 820 has been based on the old version of 9001, right? The 1994, very siloed view. It's a pile of parts, right? It's a pile of processes. And then we wonder why quality doesn't matter. And then we go, yeah, well, didn't 1345 or 9001 get rewritten in 2000 to change that view to be more process-oriented? Yes. But a lot of people never made that transition in their heads because it was too complex, right? Before, I could focus in on this process and then focus in on this process. Now you're telling me I can't just do this process without thinking about how it's connected to all the others. And it's proverbial thread on a sweater. Yeah, that's yeah. how a quality system works. When you pull the thread, the whole thing is going to come with it. And yeah. so I get it. It's hard, but you have. And this comes back to why do you have to have the architecture well planned out so that before you pull the thread, you understand what it's connected to. And yeah. now you can make better decisions about what, whether I want to make this change, how do I want to make this change? How is it going to propagate through the system? Yeah, that's I feel like that was kind of a mic drop right there. Did you have anything else you want to add to the you know to our listeners um, where they can find you, what you're doing? Yeah, and so these days I'm doing consulting. So I don't work for any particular med device company. I try to work for all of them. Like, yeah. <laughs> but and our company's called QRX Partners. And it's very simple. QRXpartners.com is the easiest way uh, to find us. And I'll put a link uh, in the show notes as well. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. and my email is just as easy. Steve.gompertz at QRXpartners.com. Uh, we actually have a feature on our website where we'll let you ask us a question for free. Um, so you can touch a base with an expert and get some free advice within limits, of course, but <laughs> certainly get the conversation started and not you know, start the clock. On. Yeah. And, uh, and then, as I mentioned, I, I do a lot of teaching, you know, I'm not saying you have to go get a master's degree, but I teach a master's degree program here that's available remotely. Uh, but then I do these workshops like the, the guerrilla tactics and there are others that I do as well, uh, at various conferences as standalone uh, webinars. Or we can certainly deliver them, you know, individually to companies. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. I really appreciate it. And all the things you're doing to make the industry a more streamlined place. It's much needed. And so I appreciate the work that you're doing. For those of you who are listening, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. We appreciate you listening. We are going to be having an Ask Me Anything session with Steve in a few weeks as well. So I'll have a link in the show notes and we can stay tuned and, and we'll tell you a little bit more about that. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. The best medical device companies don't just follow the rules. They lead with quality. At Greenlight Guru, we try to do the same. Our medical device success platform is based on the latest FDA and ISO standards, as well as the best practices of medical device manufacturers who lead the industry with products of the highest quality. If you're ready to bring safer, better medical devices to market faster, contact greenlight.guru today.